Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Eugene Viscusi. Dr. Viscusi is Director, Acute Pain Management, and Associate Professor of Anesthesiology at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Viscusi, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Summarize the current treatments for acute post-op pain and explain why something new is needed. There are excellent questions. We currently have a lot of technologies in the area of treating post-operative pain. Some of them are relatively simple and many of them are managed by the surgeons. But for a very invasive procedures, things such as hip and knee replacements and major abdominal or chest procedures, the anesthesiology team is frequently called upon to do something more invasive and specialized like an epidural analgesic technique or a variety of peripheral nerve blocks. And almost always there is a reliance on the opioid or narcotic class of analgesics, including morphine. And the current problem with these technologies, I think, can best be expressed by the numbers of patients who still, in many studies of surveys of postoperative pain, suggest that a lot of patients have a lot of unrelieved pain. So one problem is our current technologies seem to create these analgesic gaps. And I really like to use that word analgesic gap because I think it crystallizes this problem of the best intentions where patients do have periods of pain relief, but then have these periods of interruption in their pain relief. This might occur because of patient movement, activity, physical therapy, but very often it's the limits of the technology where epidural catheters fail or the blocks wear off. PCA, patient-controlled analgesia, fails to work if the IV comes out, infiltrates, or if the tubes that tether the patient kink and fail to deliver. Also, the side effect profile of these drugs. The uh, opioids create known problems like nausea, vomiting, itchiness, respiratory depression, uh, confusion. So there's a constant desire to try to reduce the amount of these medications provided. And then, of course, there's the burden of the technologies. They require a lot of healthcare resources and have been linked to medication errors because of improper programming or drug swap. So I guess I would summarize by saying our technologies are rather dated and they're very cumbersome and require a lot of healthcare resources and just don't provide consistent analgesia. Tell us about the capsaicin research you're involved with. Uh, This is a very interesting area and just one of many new things being explored to improve uh, postoperative pain. The thing that caught my attention about capsaicin was that it seems to have efficacy with single application. So currently it's being studied by application directly to the surgical wound at the end of surgery. So the only interruption is that you need to soak or saturate the tissues by dripping the capsaicin over the tissues and letting it soak for about five minutes. And that's it. We're done. There's no need for any indwelling catheters and it appears to have a prolonged effect lasting days to weeks. So it reduces the reliance on the opioids. It reduces the reliance on tethering technologies and indwelling catheters. And it, most importantly, is a local drug that does not have a systemic effect, or at least that's what we're studying at this point. So it's really a very desirable concept if I can provide 
pain relief by putting something directly in the area. Explain how capsaicin works. Well, capsaicin belongs to a class of compounds known as TRYP-V1 agonist. The TRYP-V1 receptors are located dominantly on the C-fibers. And the C-fibers, this is an important point because the C-fibers are those fibers that carry nociceptive type pain, not the good pain, you know, the kind of pain that you get when you bump into something and have to withdraw or uh, the control position sense and things like that. So there's a real selectivity as to where these receptors are. And I can best explain the action by the experience you have when you bite into a chili pepper or another capsaicin-laden pepper. You usually experience this immediate burning sensation, and that's the activation phase where calcium influx occurs. Then following that, there's sort of a tingly sensation leading into a period of numbness, and that's when that channel is deactivated for a considerable period. And of course, what we're doing is targeting delivery to a very exact location, so it has a very uh, potentially potent effect. Tell us about over-the-counter capsaicin. As you know, many patients and uh, healthcare providers are aware, there are a number of over-the-counter preparations uh, in the forms of creams, ointments that can be applied to a local area. And some patients really swear by these formulations, and some physicians certainly prescribe them as part of uh, pain relief for things like localized arthritis to a joint, say the knee. And certainly there does appear to be some effect, but the real challenge is that it does burn or tingle at first, and you're dealing with that barrier of the skin, this you know very well-designed system that keeps the outside outside and the inside inside. So getting the capsaicin to the target area is the real problem with those creams that are used on the outside. But they do appear to have some efficacy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Eugene Viscusi from Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, discussing the latest capsaicin research. Dr. Viscusi, what do the early phase studies reveal about capsaicin? We have a couple of studies with data that has been presented at some major meetings. The most recently presented data was at the American Society of Anesthesiologists in October in San Francisco. This was a hernia repair study conducted in Europe. And again, this was local application of capsaicin to the surgical wound just prior to closure. And the findings were impressive. They demonstrated a prolonged period of analgesia lasting many days, actually into weeks following the surgery. So that really caught my attention and seems to support that there is something going on where we may have something useful for postoperative pain. There was also a total knee replacement study, an early phase small study, that showed a prolonged analgesic effect. In this study, it was followed for two weeks and also showed a marked reduction in the need for additional morphine in the first 48 hours. So these are important endpoints that we look at in terms of functionality and improved side effect profile in the acute postoperative period. Currently, we don't have anything that could provide both an acute and a prolonged analgesic effect 
of several weeks from a single application. Do the studies involve researching how the rehab period goes because of the effective pain management? That's certainly an important area to consider because ultimately we're concerned not just about pain relief, we're concerned about functionality and how this improvement in pain control and reduction in side effects might overall benefit the recovery of the patient. In truth, we don't have that information yet, but we certainly will be collecting that in future studies. So this is pretty typical of the way drug development is done. You first look for safety and efficacy, and then try to figure out the correct dose. And then once you've sorted out those issues, then you can do the large-scale studies where you can look at these very interesting things like uh, rehabilitation and physical therapy and long-term benefits. There are there any downsides to capsaicin? Well, I guess, first of all, we don't have the final chapter written yet. So I'm optimistic, but I will wait until we see that it really provides the analgesia that we're looking for in the postoperative period. So I guess downside number one is we don't know for sure that it is going to be a, a useful and effective drug, but the studies to date look very promising. Another downside, uh, as you know, when you bite into that pepper, there's that period of burning at first. So capsaicin has to be applied while the patient is under anesthesia. The study that we're currently doing with knee replacement, the patient has a dense spinal anesthetic for surgery, so the burning sensation of capsaicin is not felt by the patient, and that feeling is long gone by the time the spinal wears off. So, you know, you need to define a way to use the drug during an anesthetic. This isn't something you would just apply without some other analgesic for that immediate period. The other question is we don't know that this will be a sole analgesic agent. And I'm not sure that matters because the way we really practice pain management today is a multimodal approach where we take the best benefit of one drug and combine it with another drug. All of these drugs may work at different targets, different pathways, and that's probably the best way to treat pain since pain has a degree of plasticity and a multiple pathway by which pain is uh, perceived. Dr. Vescuzzi, thank you so much for joining us to discuss the latest capsaicin research. Thank you, Susan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening.